You know what I loved um, during uh, communion? I remember a time, maybe about a year and a half ago, two years ago, when we were trying to figure out how to do communion. Because we were having everybody come up, and everybody was taking it, like, single. And then we were like, do we have everybody sit down? Do we pass it out? Do we get a little wafer that's inside the little cup? And then you just peel it back, and it's like a tiny, you know, meal. (laughs) What do we do? And I love what has happened organically. And I, I heard the Lord saying that he's putting the lonely in families. And I just see all these little organic families just kind of like popping up. And that's not anything that we're like, hey, everybody, make sure that you make up little families to take communion with. It's just happening because you guys all love each other. And man, it's just so cool to be a part of a place like that. Love you guys so much, so much. It's a huge, huge deal. He puts the lonely in families. Amen. Uh, If you see a kid around, you reach your hand out towards him. Not in anger with the desire to bless them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these little ones. Lord, we pray that all the desires of your heart for these little ones, all the plans that you have for them would come to pass. Lord, that not a single thing would hinder them from uh, receiving all the blessings that you have for their life. Lord, may they grow up as children of obedience. May they grow up as children that hear and obey the voice of God. May they know your word so well that in moments of weakness, God, they call upon you to be a light unto their path. Father, we thank you for them. They are blessings to us. Let us never forget that. Even in moments when we're tired, when the money's run out, when they're crying or throwing a fit or they're running away or not doing what we want them to do, Lord, may we never forget that they are a miracle from you. We thank you for them, Lord. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of y'all uh, know that in the church world, um, how many of you guys have been just in or a part of church in some way, fashion, or form for at least 10 years? How about 20 years? How about 30 years? Okay. Okay, cool. So you've probably seen buzzwords come and go. Things that like the church likes to say. And, 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 and things like, uh, I remember um, relevance. Does anybody remember that? It's like, we've got to be relevant. Relevant to the world. Because the world doesn't care about what we're doing. So we've got to figure out a way to be relevant. Um, what's another word? Come on, Nick. Potluck. <laughs> it doesn't even mean anything. It's potluck. What is that? It's a big pot of luck. Community. Discipleship. You know what I love? I love that over the course of the last few years, at times I felt like discipleship was this gang of people just beating me up, right? And, and because it, it was, there's, it's so hard. It's so hard. And then I'll be, be like online and I'll see like get discipled for like $20 a month. Or like, would you like to be discipled? And it's like a, a book series. Right? Kind of like, it'd be like, if you listen to this tape, it will make you thinner. Like, that's what I feel like it's like. Like, if you read this book, it will make you successful. 
You know what I mean? And I don't get that. I don't get like this idea of being discipled from afar. Like it's like, Alex, is that you in the camo? I tell you what, I don't ever want you to come any closer to me than you are right now. I'm going to disciple you because I like you and I like camo. Now, I want you to tell all your friends that you're being discipled from 100 feet away, right? I mean, this is, this is, this is, there you go. He's being discipled. That's it. That's all it takes. All he has to do is just say, I'm being discipled. And that's all it takes. <sighs> so Pastor Nick last week talked about being discipled by God, discipled by Jesus. And um, I, I recognized almost immediately, as soon as he started talking, what this, what this next sermon would be. This is called Follow Me As I Follow Christ today. It's not very original. I think it's even in the Bible. No, it definitely is. But the crazy thing is, is that if I said to everybody, hey, does being discipled by Jesus sound like a good thing? Everybody in here would probably say, yeah, I want to be discipled by Jesus. The hard part is, is that throughout most of your day, Jesus isn't showing you exactly what to do or how to treat different people or how to interact with different people. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't speak. I'm saying typically how to treat your wife when you first get married. That's, in, in all honesty, how many people when they first got married were Christians and had no idea what they were doing when they first got married, right? How many of you still have no idea what you're doing, right? <laughs> we need help. And we need assistance. We need families. We need brothers and sisters. We need to see examples of Jesus being lived out before us so that we can go... I see what you just did there. I never would have thought to do it that way, but that seems like a way better way than my, my instincts would have told me to do it, right? Or, man, I just watched you do that and that looked terrible. I don't want to do that. I don't want that same outcome. I don't want those consequences in my life, right? The good and the bad. But if we're living separate lives from one another where we come in, we all see each other and everybody puts on their best face and dresses in their coolest clothes and... And then we all go back and close our garage door behind us and, and sit and, and watch TV and hang out inside the house and never interact with one another. You can't call that discipleship. My goal today is, number one, to present Jesus in such an attractive way as the Spirit leads that whoever in this room doesn't know Christ chooses to make a decision today to follow Christ or is moved by the Spirit to follow Christ. That's my first goal. My second goal is to show that the way of the Bible, as it concerns discipleship, is for imperfect people to follow other imperfect people as they're led by the Spirit. I've heard people say, God talks to me in a special way that no one else understands. That's a very, very dangerous way to be. God talks to me in a way that no one else understands. Let me tell you why that's so dangerous. When you set yourself on an island and no one else gets in, then you are God. 
Now you say, no, 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 God is God and I just listen to him, but, but nobody else understands that relationship. What happens if your meter gets broken? What happens if your compass gets broken? And you don't realize, you say, oh, that could never happen to me. It happened to some pretty amazing men and women inside this book. So today I want us to talk about what it means to follow imperfect people and then how that can bring about God's will in your life. Amen? Amen. Let's go to Genesis 1.11. There was a, a man that I love dearly that I hope that all of us get to know more and more that asked me this past week. He said, has God ever used your failures to bring about good things in your life? I feel like my entire walk with Christ has been nothing but failures that have somehow been recycled into something that's way more beautiful than I ever could have conceived of. What we're going to see in Genesis 1 is this principle of like producing like. If you ever want to argue with an evolutionist for no reason at all, that would probably be the best argument. Like produces like. There's adaptations within a species, but it's still a cat, still a dog, still a bird, right? Genesis 1.11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. What does y'all say next? According to their various kinds. Let's look at Genesis 1.21. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems. What does y'all say? According to their kinds and every winged bird. According to its kind. And God saw that it was good. How about verses 24 and 25? And God said, let the land produce living creatures. According to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals, the livestock according to their kind, all the creatures that move along the ground. Oh my goodness. God saw that it was good. Look at Matthew 7 real quick. Look at verse 15. It says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. I got to tell you, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night. I love every single one of you in here, but I'm always trying to look. All of us are. All three of us pastors, and I guarantee the elders as well. We're always trying to look, is there someone coming in that has ulterior motives? Is there someone that desires to hurt or to harm? It's something that keeps us up at night. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Say, by their fruit. By their fruit. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Goes on to elaborate on that point. The idea of like producing like. This is something that not only applies to the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, and the animals that move along the ground, and the plants that grow up. It also applies to us. You will reproduce what you are. Whatever's inside of you, you're going to reproduce it. 
if you're not reproducing, and I would argue that all of us are reproducing in some way, but if you're not reproducing what you desire to reproduce, the answer is not to force other people to do what you want them to do. The answer is to let the Lord heal your heart. There's, uh, there's big problems with racism in this country. There's big problems with uh, violence. And what I think is so interesting is that the answer that so many people are running to is to stop people from saying certain words or to stop people from doing certain actions or to try and keep people from buying certain things. Which I, I, don't, I don't have a gun that I know of. Maybe I do. My dad has a gun. I may be borrowing his gun. But it's only because I haven't returned it to him. I don't care about guns. And I remember what it was like to be racist. The answer is not for us to try and guard ourselves better or eliminate the opportunity for sin. The answer is for us to allow the Lord to do heart work. Because once I was freed from racism, what I saw is that I didn't have to watch what I said. That's the crazy part. A lot of people say, I wish I didn't have to watch what I said. Then you need to get your heart right. Not tell everyone else to stop being sensitive. You need to get your heart right. There are some people in here who, yes, were even raised in the north. I'm from the south. But we're even raised in the North that still have racism in their hearts. That's hatred. You are divided. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. The answer is not to control what we say. The answer is to allow our hearts to be changed. You will reproduce what you are. It will come out of you one way or another. Your fruit will be seen. People will see it. The only way that you can keep that from happening is by isolating yourself. Which is what a lot of us tend to do. When we feel sinful, when we feel like we don't want to be known, we isolate ourselves. There's this thing called the Pirkei vote. How many of you guys have ever heard that before? Okay, sweet. The Pirkei vote. This is something that is very, very, very Jewish. It says, Moses received Torah from God at Sinai. Torah, first five books of the Bible, the law, oral. He transmitted it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the members of the great assembly. This is from the Pirkei Avot. Pirkei Avot means the ethics of our fathers. This is part of the Mishnah, okay, which is a part of the Jewish writings. This principle is one where they place themselves in a line of transmission. Don't let me lose you in these words. That begins with Sinai. The rabbis of the Mishnah define themselves as the possessors of the authentic tradition. I want to contend for this idea today. What I represent today is not Nick and my ability to dress, speak, earn, or perform good enough for you guys to desire to be like me so that you listen to what I say and follow what I instruct. My desire is to stand on something that dates all the way back to Mount Sinai where Moses received the law from God. Because if I stand on my own merit and my own accolades and my own ability to achieve and perform, then as soon as I fail or fall, anyone whose hope is in me will also fall. 
We're coming to a time and we're entering into a season where I believe that we're going to see man-made empires begin to fall. And it's going to be sad to watch because there are many people who think that they stand, who as they watch the system that they've put their hope in crumble, they too will crumble. And I think the heart of God will break. It is so important for us to recognize that what we're standing on is way bigger than us. What I am representing today is way bigger than me. It is deeper than what I can comprehend, although the Lord allows me to comprehend some of it. It's bigger than me, and it extends way beyond me and before me. That should give us confidence. Because even if you're listening to my words today and you allow these words to change your heart or to change your mind by the Spirit of God, you're not necessarily just following Nick. You're following something that's way bigger than me. We all get this. We recognize that. What I'm going to contend for today is that even if you were to choose to emulate your life after me or after Pastor Nick or Pastor Mike, after Elder Mark, Elder Ben, or several other people in here who live exemplary lives, okay? If you were to choose to model yourself after them, what I'm contending for today is that even in the midst of their imperfections and their failures and their mistakes, that God's will for your life would still come about. How many of you guys, when thinking about following someone, have been afraid that if I follow someone who has the potential for failure, it could mean that I myself will fail? Does that sentence make enough sense for us all to agree? Because I think most of us have been in that place before. I don't know if I can follow this person because they might fail and then I would fail. Anybody? Okay, cool. We're going to look at two of arguably the best disciples in the entire Bible. Joshua and Elisha. Pastor Mike wants me to call him Elisha. We had a big debate about that this morning. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. <laughs> the Lord works through my mistakes. Let's go to 2 Kings 2. So Elijah and Elisha, these are the most powerful prophets that are in the Old Testament. Moses is called a prophet. He led the people who deliver. But Elijah literally represents the prophets. I mean, when you're studying the Bible and you see Elijah, he literally represents the prophets. And then Elisha inherited a double portion of his spirit. So I think, I think it's safe to say that they, these two are the most powerful prophets that are in the Old Testament. What we read about is this interesting story at the end of Elijah's life where he's about to be taken up into heaven. He's been with Elisha now for seven to 11 years. And Elisha's been following him wherever he goes. Now, Elijah is one of these, I guess you could call him an introvert. I think that that would be safe to call him that. But he has a job to do and he does his job. So he doesn't allow his introvertedness to stop him from doing what God has called him to do. What we see, that was a little plug. I, I, I totally just made a huge leap there. It's just, there's an ongoing conversation about extroverts and introverts. What we see is that there are four places that they go to 
as Elijah is about to be taken up into heaven. Now, if I were to say to you guys right now, Las Vegas, someone holler out to me what that means to you. Gambling, Sin City, what else? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sure, great. If it has a reputation for gambling, apparently not, right? If I were to say New York, what would some people say? Big Apple, what? Never sleep, Statue of Liberty, right? Okay, great, great. If I were to say Orlando, what would you guys think? Okay, cool. So these places, we have connections with them. We understand these places. And we understand that there are things that are bigger than just an actual city. You guys didn't tell me it's up 26.2 square miles with up to 22 million people in it. No, you told me things about it that you associate with the city, right? So we're going to read about four different places. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan. Now, we don't have those same kind of associations with those places as they do. They have those associations because that's where they're from. In the same way, if I were to say Seattle, people might think coffee or Portland. Weird, right? <laughs> right, Manuel? <laughs> And Kelly. So what I want us to grasp today is I want us to try and understand these places from their viewpoint. Because if we do, I think the message that will come through in Elijah's transfer of power and authority to Elisha will actually send a pretty cool message. So the first place that they go to, this is all in 2 Kings 2. We'll start reading a few and then I'm just going to jump around and we'll just see where we go. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. Now, we wouldn't know this right off the bat. Elijah's been here before where he told his servant to stay put because he was about to go and be depressed, be isolated, be introverted. And he went for 40 days and 40 nights and didn't eat any food or drink any water and just traveled and ended up at the same place that Moses was. By the way, we could pause and do an entire message on how Elijah and Moses are like the same. And like Elisha and Joshua are like the same. Moses is to Joshua as Elijah is to Elisha. Why? Because it's, it's all patterns. They're separated by like 400 years. Elijah and Elisha existed like 400 years after Moses and Joshua. And then like a thousand years later, you got John the Baptist and Jesus, which we'll get to later. But this whole idea of like patterns constantly repeating themselves. You guys remember this from the feast, right? When we're looking through the Bible, we start seeing these patterns and we're like, then you'll get to a story and you're like, I don't know this story very well, but it's starting to sound like this. And I'll bet you this happens. Yep, there it was. It did happen. Because you start to notice patterns in the Bible and you see, oh, these people are a lot like these people. Oh, he's acting a lot like this person. So this is probably going to happen to him. Yep, there it was. So we see them going through um, the same situation that Elijah was there before. And his servant was like, okay, I'll chill here. Is that, I mean, do you want me to stay right here? And then Elijah's like, yeah, just stay there, right? But this time Elisha's like, no, I'm going to go with you. Something different. So Elisha says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Even if you tell me, don't come. Don't come. I don't want you to come. You can't get rid of me. I'm coming. Already off the bat, 
this idea for discipleship, right? So if you are a person who desires to be discipled in some way. Now, instantly, anybody that desires to be discipled, you rush in with all the excuses as to why you can't. Oh, I'm past that point in my life. Or, oh, I'm too busy. I've got a job. I've got to do these things. I'm not like that. I, I, can't, I, I don't have the freedom and the flexibility to do all these things. I, I'm going I'm to challenge you today. Don't think of any excuses. Just listen to the principles. And if the Lord wants to move you in a certain direction or bring about changes in your life, then let him do that. Don't tell him all the reasons why he can't. Just listen to him. If he wants to give you direction, then let him do that. But already Elisha says to him, no, I'm not leaving. I'm coming with you wherever you go. You can't stop me. And so Elijah lets him come. They're leaving from Gilgal. That place, Gilgal, means separation. This is a place where separation happens. You can bring that slide up and show that. Elisha follows through Gilgal, the place of separation. Now, Gilgal is probably most famous for after they crossed over the Jordan, Joshua and all the Israelites, they cross over the Jordan and they take stones from in the middle of the Jordan River and they bring them and set up a monument at Gilgal. And they literally take 600,000 and some change men and circumcise them whatever age they're at. Terrible day. But a good day because God also says, I'm rolling away your reproach from Egypt. They just spent 40 years in the desert. They were supposed to enter the promised land a lot sooner than that. But no one believed and everybody doubted and everybody feared except for Joshua and Caleb. And so he didn't allow anybody except those two and then anybody under the age of 20 to enter into the promised land. But then when they crossed the Jordan and they entered into this new place, it says that God was changing them. He was allowing them to cross over from death to life. And every one of them had to cross over to be counted. This is a place where he was separating them from whatever reputation they might have developed in Egypt or in the desert. Okay? Separation, this place of separation. So how interesting is it that Elijah says to Elisha, don't, don't come with me anymore, as he's leaving the place of separation. But Elisha overcomes it and says, no, I'm coming with you wherever you go. This next place that they go to is Bethel. By this point, they're gathering the school of prophets. Now, if you know Elijah's life, what you also know is that when he went away to Mount Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai, which is where Moses received the word of the Lord. So Elijah goes up to Mount Sinai to hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord speaks to him. Remember when the Lord hid Moses behind the cleft of a rock and then passed in front of him or covered him, right? And in the same way, Elijah also experienced the Lord. He wasn't in the thunder. He wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the earthquake. He was in the still small voice. So we see these two matching up right there. That's a whole, it's a rabbit trail. Don't make me go down there. I feel you. No, I'm not going to do it. But by now... What you see is there's a whole school of prophets. Well, what Elijah set up on that mountain is he's like, I'm the only one. Y'all remember him saying that? I'm the only one left. There's nobody left. Nobody loves God like I do. How many of you guys ever felt that before? Nobody loves God. Everybody's getting it wrong. Everybody's getting it. Yeah, yeah, come on. I mean, if you get passionate about Jesus, that thought crosses your mind at some point. Lord, am I the only one that loves you anymore? Am I the only? What a, what a stupid statement. As if he can't, like, take care of his own bride, right? So, so Elijah says, I'm the only one. He's passing by schools 
of prophets. I mean, this is less than a decade later. He's passing by schools of prophets that exist. And they're passing, they go to Bethel, schools of prophets. Bethel literally means house of God. Jacob in Genesis 28 has a dream. Do you guys remember? He sees the son of man ascending and descending, right? At this place on the earth, from heaven down to the earth, right? Angels ascending and descending on the son of man, right? And then he opens his eyes and he's like, surely God was here and I didn't even know it. He takes a stone, turns it right side up, pours oil on it. And he's like, surely God was in this place and I didn't even know it. And he's like, surely this is the gate of heaven. Bethel represents the gates of heaven. Now, as a disciple, this is the easiest place to follow somebody. Initially separating yourself, which by the way, Elisha, when he was called, Elijah goes up to him and he takes it. And if I had anybody have like a loose coat, a coat that's off here, see this thing, right? So how many of you guys have ever graduated from anywhere and had a ceremony, right? And they call your name up, you know, Nick Slaughter, you know, thank you, you know. Right? It's like a ceremony. So Elijah, most powerful prophet ever, in his calling of Elisha, which God commanded him to do from on top of the same mountain that he spoke to Moses, this monumental moment, go and summon Elisha. Yes, Lord, I will. He, no, that's not how it went. He walks up to Elisha. Uh, Lindy, come here. Come on, come on. Don't shake your head. Come on. So pretend Lindy is Elisha. Now she's seated. No, stay there. Stay there. She sees me from coming a long ways off and I'm coming and she's like, is that Elijah? That's Elijah. Now, Lindy, y'all don't know this, but Lindy's plowing $250,000 worth of oxen. She's got 12 teams of oxen because she comes from a very wealthy family. So I walk up and I'm walking up and she's probably like, oh, 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 oh Elijah, it's me. It's me, Elijah. And he's like, Thank you, babe. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all give her a hand. And it's not just here. She has to put up with it at home too. So, but that was literally the anticlimactic moment. It's like, I'm about to receive a calling from the most powerful prophet on earth. And he walks up and, and then Elisha's like, um, can I go, can I go tell my, my family that I'm, I'm, I'm going to come with you. And he's like, uh, whatever. You know, basically is what he says. See what I've done to you. I throw my coat on your face. But but he but he he does this in such a way that's so like you wouldn't expect it. It's such a and then Elisha, what does he do? He takes the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of oxen. I mean, these were the equivalent to cars back then. He had like twenty four of them and he slaughters them all. I mean, if I were his family, I'd be like, look, just go, buddy. Leave the oxen alone. Just go. Right. But no, he he separates himself. He pays the price. Now, initially, this is seemingly the hardest part of discipleship. Is that separation. But I want to challenge you and say that's not the hardest part. The hardest part is not to get super excited, be willing to slay everything to follow the Lord. The hardest part is not following when we're at the gates of heaven. And the presence of God is strong and he's moving and power and miracles and all these wonderful things that's happening. Everybody loves you and it's great. And it's like, wow, where'd you get this teaching from? You know what I mean? This music is great. 
you know, stuff like that. The community around here is amazing. That's not the hardest part. So let's journey a little bit further. Next, they go to Jericho. All the while, they're gathering prophets, right? Jericho literally means city of the moon. Which is, what's crazy is as you study Islam, the moon, just, you just start to see it everywhere. On flags, there's symbols. Which is interesting, because I always look back and it's like, we worship the sun, of God, sun, right? The, the sun, now the actual star, the sun, is, is what actually gives the moon its light. The moon doesn't have any light of its own. It just reflects the sun. In my opinion, and I, I think it, it'd be pretty easy to prove this in the word, which we can do sometime if you guys are down for it, is that man, it's like the moon, and we simply reflect the glory of God, right? But you see... This rising power, which I want to argue that Islam is the largest religion in the world. The largest religion in the world with 1.6 billion people. Okay? When you look at this prominent religion, I think you see this worship of man and man's achievements and man's ability. And it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. Jericho, city of the moon, represents the world represents the world and the ways of the world. Jericho was the first place that they encountered as they crossed over the Jordan from the desert. Jericho, it was there and it was this big, powerful, impenetrable city with walls that were so thick that they used to have chariot races on the top of them. Thick walls and walls represented the defense and the ability of a city to defend itself, right? It was tightly shut up. No one came in or went out. Jericho represents the world, this impossible thing to overcome. And they gather more prophets, still gathering schools of prophets everywhere they go. And all the prophets are going, hey, do you know that Elijah's going to get taken up today? And Elijah's like, I know, shut up. Because he doesn't want to hear that. That's his, that's his mentor, right? He doesn't want to hear this, but the prophets are seeing correctly. This is the point. The prophets are seeing correctly, and he's gathering them from all these places. What's he doing? He's building an audience, and you'll see. For what here in just a little bit? So he follows him through Jericho into the world. That's a harder place. Into the world. This is going in and reaching the lost by whatever means necessary. It's a little bit harder for a disciple to follow someone who's discipling them into, into the world. But let's look at the last one. Into Jordan. I believe that Jordan, I'll make a case for this right now. I believe that Jordan represents the gates of hell. Let me tell you why. What you see is at the Jordan, they cross over from the desert into the promised land. In Deuteronomy, it talks about them crossing over and then being counted. If they didn't cross over, then they weren't even counted. Jordan means the descender. And so this river that is so extremely important, and I'll explain to you why it's so important right now, seems to represent this monumental change. Whenever Moses passes through the Red Sea and it splits, the New Testament calls that the baptism of an entire nation. When Joshua passes through the Jordan, it equates it with the passing through of the Red Sea. So it's literally like the nation is being baptized again. And when you get baptized, when we do baptisms next week, what does that symbolize? Death. Death. 
right? Burial with Christ and raised to life with him again. This baptism that's taking place represents going from death to life. And I believe what you're seeing is Elisha is willing to follow, willing to follow Elijah across the Jordan. Now, what's crazy about this is several people split the Jordan to go into the promised land. But only Elijah splits the Jordan to go back into the desert. And so we have this audience of prophets that's sitting here watching Elisha and Elijah. Now, Elijah's walking. He keeps telling him every stop, Elisha, don't go any further with me. And he's like, I'm coming. I mean, you might as well stop telling me. I'm just coming with you. And all these prophets that are kind of trailing behind him, they don't know what's going on. But they know that Elijah's going to be taken up that day. And so they get to this place where Elijah's about to be taken up. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've crossed over into the gates of hell. It's like this picture of crossing even into death. I would say that this is the hardest place for a disciple to follow a discipler. Is when everything around you looks like it's falling apart. Is when it gets the hardest. Is when you are descending and descending and descending further. And you're not the great man or the great woman anymore. And everything begins to fall apart. And it looks like it's all crumbling. Have you ever tried to lead someone? And that's happened to you. It all begins to fall apart. What do they do? What do you do? For me, when I look at the life of Jesus, I look at that moment for the disciples was as he was being carried away by the soldiers from the Garden of Gethsemane. It's all falling apart for Jesus. They come to arrest him. Judas betrays him. What does everybody do? They leave. Everybody leaves. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus humbled himself, descends further and further and further, right? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself to being like a man, to dying, submitted to death, even death on the cross. He descended. And then at that descent, everybody took off. And John was the only one at the cross. But he descended and everyone left. This is the hardest part as a leader. This is the hardest part as someone who follows. Because everybody wants to jump on board a train that looks like it's cooking along. Everybody's excited. Man, I, I love this. Have you heard this guy's message? It might not even be substantial. But because this person is followed by so many people, there's extra hype that's put on it. You're not being discipled by someone that you grab quotes from off the internet. Hear me on this. You are not being discipled by someone whose sermons you like to listen to. That's not what it means to be discipled. You're not being discipled if you meet for coffee for 30 minutes a week or an hour a week and you just talk about your problems. That's not discipleship. Discipleship involves every step of this Elisha, Elijah journey. It involves the separation and the paying the high price. It involves, yes, the good times. Yes, going into the world. And then, yes, the bad times as well. It involves all of it. Because you don't just learn from someone by how they act when things are good. You see how they react and how they act when things are bad. This is a problem if you're being discipled 
from afar by somebody because you get to see what they let you see. Some of these people that we follow online or that we read their books and stuff like that, we don't see how they're treating their board members in the back rooms. We don't see how they're treating their wives or their kids. We give our allegiance to them. And then a few decades later, when everything falls apart, we're not going back and saying, man, let's learn from that and not follow people like that again. Be careful who you pledge your allegiance to. Because you may be imitating someone whose life is falling apart behind the scenes. And you can't see it. Now, when they come and they're ready to present to you, they look immaculate. But you don't get to see them in the back room. I can tell you, you can learn a lot more about a person from an hour or two hours of working hard with them than you can sitting and looking at their family pictures. Watch how someone reacts when things don't go as expected. See what they do. The frustration, the anger. Whenever something happens to them that was unexpected or is outside their control, how do they react? Are you following these people? Do you know who you're following? Do you know the people that you're following and giving all your allegiance to? Do you know them? I don't think it's important or just a method or a style of allowing people to come into our lives and to see our lives. I think it's the only way. I don't think there is another way. I don't think there is another way of raising others up than knowing them. You have to be known and you have to know who you're following. The worst possible place that you could be is to think that you're being led by someone and to also not be reading your word. Because then you're completely directionless and you're just going off of what you see with your eyes. If I know this, I can be sitting and I can listen. We've talked about this many times before. I can be sitting and I can be listening to someone talk and they can be in a prominent position, a leader of this or that, and I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm going, that's true, that's biblical, that's godly, that's true, that's not true. Or it feels like, feels like this is selfish ambition. It feels like this is jealousy. It feels like this is pride. That's true, that's true. Because I know this. So I can listen to someone as they're talking. I can watch the way that someone lives their life and I can go, that's godly or that's not godly. Discipling doesn't come from you having your act together and presenting someone with a, 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 a contrived system. It comes from allowing people into your life. They watch your rises and your falls. They watch you get it right. They watch you get it wrong. And they watch how God is sovereign through it all. As Elisha followed Elijah to this place, this is a pivotal moment for him. Because when Elijah was taken up into a cloud and all the prophets saw it, Elisha was now the only one. Elijah wasn't there anymore. It's a lot easier to follow somebody than to be the one responsible for leading. How many of you guys have had to lead people before in some capacity? Okay. I've watched people that were critical of other leaders, so critical, and were always offended, always upset, always carrying some sort of offense. But then they step into the role of leadership and now are filled with grace because they realize how difficult it is. How many of you guys that have kids now realized how hard it was for your parents to do what they did and all of a sudden had a lot more grace on them? 
That's what I'm talking about. In the same way, but you didn't realize it until you were in that position. And then you're like, oh my goodness. Their job is so hard. I wish I would have treated them so much better. This is the way that it is when you're discipling people. They won't understand your position if they haven't been where you are. And so what might happen? They might say things that rip out your heart. They might do things that cause you to question your own value or worth or your abilities. If you're trying to disciple someone or to lead someone and they turn on you, you have to remember that the same thing happened to Jesus and he was perfect. This is what I remember as we're doing this and as we're doing this stuff at home. Because I've had, it's been a joke. It's, it's like almost once a week I have someone come up to me and tell me what a bad job I'm doing. In some way, fashion, or form, right? But, it's, but, but what's, what's, what's neat is that at this point, I'm not, I'm not so tied up in uh, wondering if I'm capable of doing this. I've accepted that this is who I am now. And that like it or not, here I am, Right? And so if someone comes and they have a problem or an issue with me, now what I'm looking for is, man, what's really the problem? First, my thought is, Lord, is, is, is there any merit into what they're saying? If there is, then let me receive it. Let me be corrected. But then my next thought is, what's really going on? Because they might be coming to me and saying, you know, I, I really feel like you guys don't even care about us. Someone might be telling me that. And I'm like, you know, or someone, uh, someone else saying, um, you know, you really, uh, you really hurt me. I've really been offended with you. Which, by the way, we've been talking about like the biblical merit that exists whenever you come up to someone. It's like, I just want you to know that I've been offended with you and I want to ask your forgiveness. That's like, am I wrong? That's not in the Bible, right? I've been offended with you and I want to ask your forgiveness. Handle your offense between you and God. Handle your offense. Don't be offended. Recognize your own sin and then have mercy on the other person. Right? That's the better way to handle it. I've been offended with you and I, and I want to ask for forgiveness. Cool. Awesome. No one's ever come up to you guys and said that. I've been offended with you. I want to ask your forgiveness. It's kind of a, a, a stinky feeling, right? Well, for me it is. Are we tracking? Am I, am, am I just, I'm just floating around up here just like. These leaders were imperfect. In 1 Kings 19, you see that Elijah... I'm not even going to say it was arguably suicidal. He was suicidal. He didn't eat or drink for 40 days. And he went up there and he literally said, take my life. I don't want to do this anymore. Right? I've been there. I've been there. And what does God do? Does he go, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you feel that way. So sorry. What does he do? He gives him work to do. He's like, stop, come on. Go anoint Elisha as your successor. Go anoint Azael as the king and go anoint Jehu as king. Which is, that's rough, especially for those of us who, you know, I want a little sympathy. I came to Lindy this morning. I'm like, I was up till 2.30 last night with the message. And I was hoping that she would say something like, uh, oh, and because and, I got up at seven this morning. And she was like, that's your choice. <laughs> yes, she did. Yes, she did. 
we want sympathy sometimes when it's, when it's hard. And in discipleship, I got to tell you, when a disciple comes and they're like, this is, this is just really hard. I'm having to go through these hard things. My initial response is, yeah, it's hard. I get back to work. Right? Gee, make, make sure I don't just go off on tangents here. So he was given, Elijah was given duties that he didn't carry out. He was supposed to do three things. God gave him three things very specifically recorded in the book. Go anoint Hazael, go anoint Jehu, and go anoint Elisha. He only anointed Elisha. He had 11 years to do it. He didn't do it. Imperfect. He didn't get it all right. He didn't do everything that he, that he was supposed to do. God made it work out. I have had people get so upset with me for not calling them back. So upset. I'm so sorry if I haven't called you back at some point. I'm sorry. And it's not always because I can't. Sometimes I just don't. Just getting all that out on the table. And I have no sympathy for you. I love all of you dearly. Moses dealt with insecurity early on. He did. <laughs> Nick is like, you are digging yourself a hole. It's okay. I've dug worse. I've dug worse. He argues with God in five different ways whenever God calls him at the burning bush. He's literally standing at a miracle, talking with a miracle. And the miracle is saying, hey, I want you to go do this. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Right? This is what Moses is doing with literally the presence of God. Right? And not only that, on top of that, his career as a, the deliverer of Israel. How many times did people try and come against him and take his role? They were like, you know what? You kind of, you stink as a leader. You're not very good. Right? Korah. This guy named Korah. About all these other dudes. And they were like the men of renown. I can picture what they would be wearing if they were alive today. Right? I mean, the, it, their hair would be good and they'd have the stylish glasses. They'd be fit, a little taller and tan. And then the, the business, kind of like casual business. And they would have walked up to him. Moses, we really appreciate what you've done. But your services are no longer needed. And Moses is like, I didn't put myself here. This is who God has called me to be. Tell you what, if his favor is with you over me, have at it. And what does God do? He distinguishes between the two. The earth opens up and swallows all these amazing men. Right? As a leader, the question for you to ask is not, am I equipped enough? Am I qualified for this? He's made you what you are. Your question should not be, well, Lord, can you uh, make sure that I have this before I do it? Can you make sure that I understand these things before I do it? He just calls you to do it, and then you step out there. Mistakes and failures and shortcomings and all of it. And what does he do? As you walk by faith, what does he do? He works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. So he's calling you, and he's calling all of you. Don't hesitate. Because the men that we admire most in the Bible were imperfect. Did not have it all together. Didn't know how it all was going to work out. But they just began putting one foot in front of the other. And they followed. 
Joshua couldn't go all the way up to the mountain with Moses on Mount Sinai. But where did he stay? Halfway up. If you're following somebody, if you're learning, are you at the place where if you're not allowed to go into a meeting, you'd sit outside the door and read your Bible and pray? How serious are you about following? How serious are you about leading? Would you follow even if you had to go through the gates of hell with this person? Are you following someone and expecting them to do all the work of pursuing you? Some of us in here have gotten really upset that we're not being pursued. Right? I've heard people literally tell me, you guys aren't pursuing me enough. If Nick and Mike and I were to all sit down up here, the three of us, and everybody else were to stand up and say at once, we're upset with you for not pursuing us individually. We would all recognize how crazy that is. We would all see like, oh, I mean, that's physically impossible. They can't do it. They're not able to do it. But are you pressing in? Some people, without even pressing in, have already eliminated themselves from this race that exists. This race towards a goal. Because they've simply said, I'm not being pursued like I want to be pursued. I'm out. I'm out. You were done before you even began. Pushing in and pushing past obstacles, difficulties, being treated unfairly, pushing past offenses, bitterness, pushing past all these things is the mark of a good follower. And if you can't be a good follower, you will never be a good leader. Many of us in here would say, I'm called to be a leader. Are you following? Who are you imitating? Because all the best people had someone that they followed. And they followed them very closely. Let's go to Matthew 28. There was a period here in my life uh, with this church where... I was hiding behind false humility. And I would talk about how I didn't like authority in the church. I didn't like titles in the church. I don't like these things because I feel like people lord it over other people. And they use it for their own selfish gain. I would say things like that. I was very down on that whole idea. As the Lord's been dealing with my heart over the last five months, what I've realized is deep down, that wasn't humility. That wasn't me being like a rebel. I mean, it was actually. It was rebellion. It was me resisting and stiff arming who God had called me to be. And I hid behind not wanting there to be any authority. And for everybody just to be discipled by God, so to speak. And I recognized that God was dealing with my own heart, my own fear, my insecurity, that if I were to step out and be like, follow me as I follow Christ, if I were to actually say that, the potential is there for someone to be so turned off from Christ by the way that I live that they would never want to follow him again. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
If I stand up and say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, some of them might go, okay, I will. And then as they start to follow me, they're like, this is terrible. I don't want anything to do with this. And then I look back and I'm like, that's nobody else's fault. That's my fault. And I'd have to wrestle with those kind of things. Now, listen, I know you might say, no, it's not their fault. They have their own choices. Look, I've already been down that road. It, it falls on me. If I lead and these things are happening to the people that I'm leading, it's on me for the ways that I've lived my life, especially if there were things that I knew I should do and I didn't do them. And as I began to recognize that, I fell on my face before the Lord and I asked for forgiveness from my own rebellion, from my own wicked heart. And I said, Lord, then I don't understand what it looks like. But I know that I can't do this anymore. I know that I can't resist this idea of authority and leadership inside the church. Doesn't mean that I lord it over people and that I force people to do what I want them to do. It means that I take responsibility for the things that I'm supposed to do. And I don't shy away from that. Does that make sense? In Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's what's crazy. You have Joshua. You have Elisha. And you have Yeshua. All their names mean salvation. That's Shua. Salvation. And you see that all these men were given the Holy Spirit at the same spot in the Jordan. Joshua crossed over the Jordan. And as he crosses over, the people see that the same spirit that was on Moses is now on Joshua. And this is right at the Jordan. As, Elijah, as Elisha takes Elijah's cloak and smacks the water, because Elijah's mantle follows, falls down from heaven, and Elisha picks it up and puts it on, and then walks up to the Jordan, takes it off and smacks the water, and the water split. And all the audience that Elisha and Elijah had gathered from all these cities all saw, oh my gosh, he got his, he got his mantle, he got his glory. He followed so closely to him that he received his glory. Elisha received the same spirit that Elijah had and everybody saw it. And then at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit comes, descends on him like a dove in the Jordan at the exact same place. There's a message called Bethabara from Pastor Eric down in Sugarland. I encourage you guys all to listen to it. It's a teaching. But it shows this is the exact same place where Jesus was baptized. Joshua crosses over. Elisha crosses over. Jesus baptized in the water. All of them receive the spirit in that moment and cross over and begin their ministry. Joshua and Elisha followed their disciples, their rabbis, their teachers, their masters. They followed them so closely that when it was time for them to leave this earth they literally inherited the same glory that their master had when Elisha asked Elijah for a double portion he wasn't asking him for twice the spirit he was asking him for a firstborn inheritance what does this mean let's say that there's two sons in a household let's say the dad has a hundred acres 
one of the sons, the firstborn son, is going to get 66 and two-thirds acres, and the other one's going to get 33 and a third. The firstborn son gets a double blessing. Elisha, in this moment, is asking, let me be your son. Let me be your son as I go from this place. Give me your blessing. And Elijah says, I'll do it. If you see me go up into the clouds, then you'll have it. Sure enough, he sees him go up into the clouds. It's my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel come down and fire and sweep him up. And what you see is Elisha gets the same anointing that Elijah has. Many of us in here have people that we look up to. And we say, man, I want the same thing that this person has. I want to get the same thing. I've heard people say of Pastor Mike, Pastor Nick, and of myself, man, I want to have a family like y'all's. I want to, I want to have a, a house like y'all's or an environment like yours. And then my thoughts are, it's a crazy journey to get here. And you have to go through the gates of hell over and over and over again to get here. But if you will stay close and endure and persevere through it, then you'll get everything that you're after. And God will give it to you. He really, really will. But many of us in here are stuck where we're at because each time we come up to one place or another, whether it's the separation, whether it's the gates of heaven, whether it's the world or whether it's the gates of hell, at some point or another, we realize I'm not down for this journey. Whether you're leading or following and you miss out on the joy that comes from appointing a successor or multiplying yourself in a way that's godly in a way that's like Christ, as he does here, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. What was this? Jesus, even though he was perfect, positioned himself inside that unbroken line going all the way back to Mount Sinai. You had it passed down. Now, Jesus could have been like, I don't need that line. I'm starting my own thing. But what did he do? He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And then he said, go and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. In the same way that when Moses comes down and the instructions are to teach these to your children, teach them to obey everything that's in this book. And then Joshua also says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Be careful to obey everything in it. Right? And then we see Jesus saying, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's unbroken. And in the same way, what I stand on as a leader is not my own merit, my own strength. I stand on something that's unbroken, that dates all the way back to Moses' experience with the Lord on Mount Sinai. And what you stand on as a follower, whether you choose to follow me, Pastor Nick, Pastor Mike, or someone else that you look up to, another mentor, Elder Ben, Elder Mark, all of our wives, whoever it is that you choose to follow, what you're standing on is not that person's skills, abilities, good looks, earning ability, whatever it might be. You're standing on their ability to grab hold of the word and the presence of God and to follow him with all of their heart. And then you're trusting that as you imitate this person, that God will work all things together for your good. This is a hard, hard thing to do. But for those who would go into this narrow way, you will find life. You'll find life. But it requires that you follow and that you serve. Just a few more verses and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So we see that Jesus empowers his disciples. 
John 20, 21, he gives them his spirit. He breathes on them and says, receive the spirit. Romans 8, 11 says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in us. So in the same way that Joshua received the spirit, that Elisha received the spirit, that Jesus received the spirit, he gave that same spirit to us. That spirit is unbroken. That spirit has been multiplied and distributed since the beginning. It hovered over the surface of the waters and now it lives in the hearts of those who would follow Jesus. I'm going to give you some verses here. Can you bring up that last, the imitate slide? In 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, imitate me. In Ephesians 5.1, he says, follow God's example, which is lived out through his sons and daughters. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, it says, imitate us. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14, he says, imitate the churches that are in Christ. In Hebrews 6.12, the writer of Hebrews says, imitate the faithful that are around you. What I want to challenge all of us is it is very clear in the New Testament. We are instructed, told, commanded to imitate those who are faithful all around us. This is what we're responsible to do. Who are you imitating? Are you imitating who you see in the Facebook videos and in the Instagram photos and in the magazines and TV and the movies? What about in little blurbs what about in sermons? Who are you imitating? Or are you imitating people that you're watching their life? You're seeing what they do. You're watching how they live. You're seeing what they do when times get bad, when times get hard. Are you imitating these people? You say, well, they're imperfect. Yeah, all of them were. All of them were. All the best leaders that you read about in the Bible were imperfect. Jesus was the only one. And he still gave his spirit to imperfect people, didn't he? The goal is not to find the most perfect person to imitate the goal is to follow those who are faithful and who are following after Christ with all their heart. You follow them and imitate their way of life and you will inherit the glory that has been passed down to them from those that they imitated. How many of you in here have followed someone else in some way, capacity or form that you actually lived with or encountered or experienced on a day-to-day -day basis? How many of you guys have done that, right? It's hard, isn't it? It is a hard, hard thing. I'll bet you every single one of you has experienced tears and hardship in the midst of that journey. And you've wrestled with all sorts of things. Let me tell you, that's the point. The point is that we would get down to all the junk and the garbage that is normally left unexamined in our hearts. Discipleship brings you to that place. It's not this glorious get together and learn all the tips and tricks so that you never make mistakes and everyone thinks you're great. It gets to the bottom of the junk. Sometimes it's the swill and the absolute gunk that you never even knew was there. But that's what discipleship does. You want to know if you're being discipled? Are you getting to the junk that's at the bottom of your heart? That's how you can know if you're being discipled. This is the last verse. Let's all stand together. Philippians 3. There was three different ways that I was going to preach this message all throughout the week. I was originally going to start off with discipleship through failure. And then I was going to focus more on Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and 
It ended up being what it is today. My hope is that from this message that you both recognize that as a leader, you're going to experience hardships. You're not going to be perfect, but you also still just have to do it to put yourself out there and allow the Lord to work out the gunk that's in your heart because you're also being discipled. And then as a follower, that you go through whatever comes your way, however difficult it may be. And you don't disqualify the one that's leading you because you think that they're imperfect or because you think that they're not doing a good enough job. You recognize that God is sovereign over the leader that he's put over you. And you follow anyways. And if they don't do the job that you think they should, you still follow and you trust God. Because whatever offense rises up in your heart at the leader that you're following, you recognize, hey, rather than this being a moment to disqualify the person that I'm following, this is revealing the issues that are in my heart. And God is giving you an opportunity to deal with those issues. We don't disqualify each other because if we did, there'd be no reason for us to even meet in this place. If all I did was walk around disqualifying everybody and everybody disqualified me, then we might as well just quit right now. But if we'll allow these hardships and this friction that gets created as we move forward together, if we'll allow that to be something that causes growth in our own hearts, then God will get the glory from it. Philippians 3, 12 through 17. This is something that we talk about with all the disciples that move in. Into the house. And as I'm reading it, I think it does more for my own heart than it does for them. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Do you hear that? Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What does he say? I'm not sitting here before you telling you that I've got it all together, but I'll tell you what I am doing. I'm forgetting everything that would try and slow me down and I'm running full speed after Jesus. That's my commitment to you guys. That's our commitment to you. I guarantee it. All of us who are mature should take a view of such things, such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Do you hear that? He uses that pure chaos language. According to the pattern that we gave you. For you to be able to learn, to grow, you must receive a pattern. That pattern must be received. That pattern had to be received. You are not standing on your own merit. You are not following people because they're good enough for you to follow. We are doing it because this is the method that God has chosen to bring his salvation into this world. He did it through Joshua. He did it through Elisha. He did it through Yeshua in the Jordan. And he's doing it to us today. Don't shy away from what you're called to do. Lead well with perseverance. Follow well, even when you want to quit. Even when you try and disqualify the person that you're following. Follow well. Know the word. What I want to do right now is there, if there's anybody in here today that hasn't even begun the journey of following Christ. Then all of what we just talked about applies directly to you as it concerns Jesus, but now it's a matter of life and death. 
It's a matter of life and death. If you desire to make a decision today to follow Christ and you don't want to do it on your own anymore, if that's you today, just raise your hand. Come on, Kim. Come on. Let me get a couple of girls around here to pray with Kim. Anyone else? Today, if you stand in here and you began the journey of leading or you began the journey of following and you bailed because it got hard or if you're in the process of trying to bail right now, raise your hand. Anybody in here? Guys, if you see someone with their hand raised, pray for them, surround them.